Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up this hour, all of us on the Season team feel so lucky to be able to do this work. And we're grateful when people say yes when we ask to talk with them about their restaurants, farms, and cookbooks. So, before we go full speed ahead on 2024, we're listening back to some of our favorite conversations of 2023. Of course, we have some destination restaurants and big-name chefs in our state. But my heart skips a beat for local gems. The places where maybe you wouldn't recognize the chef's name on the bottom of the menu. Maybe there isn't even a menu to hold in your hands because it's dry erase markered on the wall. Maybe the chef is family. Last January, we teamed up with Leanne Griffin, food reporter at Hearst Connecticut Media, to get to know some of the people behind the restaurants that have been serving you for decades. Well, basically, everything with us is with fresh food and it's cooked to order. That's Wayne Stone. He's a second-generation owner of the Glenwood Drive-In. It started as a hot dog stand in Hamden almost 70 years ago. We spoke with Wayne and his daughter, Kelly Saccone, of Kelly's Cone Connection. She started the ice cream shop attached to her family's restaurant in 1985. So she knows a little something about serving customers for decades, too. Here's Wayne. We're only closed three days a year. We close Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Easter. Well, Hummel's hot dogs are what we've been using, probably been using Hummel's hot dogs for 50 years. So Hummel is another business where there's second and third generation family in that business like yourselves. Yes. Yeah. So Kelly, Glenwood's been in your family for almost 70 years. When you're not here, you're right next door at the ice cream shop, Kelly's Cone Connection. Can you tell us about how you learned how to make ice cream? Were you inspired by this restaurant background? Well, I worked at the Glenwood and we wanted to go into some kind of dessert or something. So we decided to do homemade ice cream. And I went to an ice cream university and I learned to make ice cream. And I always follow the same philosophy that my father taught me. Quality is better. So we always use the finest ingredients that we can get to make the best ice cream. We do work with a local farm, Hinnager's Farm in Hamden. And when they produce their fresh berries, strawberries, blueberries, and peaches. We work with them and we make our ice cream with their products that are grown right here in Hamden. So as dad and as the owner of this restaurant for years, I mean, how has it been for you to see her evolve like this and to create this whole other section of the business? Well, it's been very rewarding to see it pick up and see what it's done and take it over. And it's great for me to be in my age group and be able to come in every day and I get to see my children work and prosper and do the things. So it's very rewarding. It makes me very proud. We have food that makes people feel good. Like I think in the past three years, too, it's like a comfort thing. It's the same thing they've had forever, you know, and it just makes them feel good. And that's why they keep coming back. Our grill we've used for years. It's really seasoned and it's, it's served thousands. And I wonder how many hot dogs. It's, it's a special place. Yeah. It really is. What are some of your earliest memories here when you were coming here as a child? Was there something that you loved to eat? Were there, you know, specific memories that you 
kind of hold dear. I always remember coming here and getting lunch, and the hot dog was always my favorite, and I like my hot dogs with just mustard on them. Mm-hmm. And I remember the Glenwood in three or four different phases because we've added all these additions on. The first one, it was just a tiny little hot dog stand, and then we added on the dining room, and then in 1985, we added the ice cream parlor. And Wayne? Early memories are, are odd. I was so young. Uh, my dad passed away at 38, and I came in and took it over uh, right in 1960. Well, when we first originally started, it was taken over. It was, used to be a dairy aisle, like a dairy queen, and they just had the two outside windows with picnic tables. And then to see it grow to what it is today, to where we seat so many people, it, it's pride and proud to be established with it and see how they've kept it up and what they've done and stuff. So, You know, I have one customer that told me he wants to host his funeral here. <laughs> After uh, his funeral, that he is going to treat everybody to hot dogs and onion rings at the Aww. Glenwood. We have people that, like, the first place they come back into town, it's the Glenwood to get their hot dogs. Yeah. Yes. It makes you feel good. People tell us some really good stories. If you think 70 years is a long time to be serving customers, you'll really be impressed by the next restaurant we featured in that episode. Welcome to the Griswold Inn. Since 1776, we've been open. Our doors have opened to offer fine foods, spirits, and lodging since 1776, and we've never been closed in 246 years. We have been through a lot of significant historical events here. During the War of 1812, there was actually a British raid on Essex in 1814. And the troops, you know, rode in um, by cloak of darkness and then rode into Essex, the foot of Main Street, marched up here. Um, And at one point, commandeered the inn for a period of, you know, 24 hours or less. And yet, here we are still to tell the tale. And actually, our hunt breakfast, which we were famous for for many, many years, started because of that British raid. So we have, you know, the war. Uh, We have, again, recession, the depression. And that, of course, a lot of places went out of business during that. And we were able to make it through that. Prohibition was probably one of the hardest things that the Grizzledon faced. And it was a speakeasy during then. There was rum running going on at the end of the street and, you know, the knock on the back door and all of that that one might imagine. And now you have a wine bar. I know it. I know. So I I feel like it's Yankee ingenuity. I say that again and again that has kept the doors open through all of those historical events. The Griswold Inn, there's something really soulful about it. And I think that we really feel that it matters to people that have their family traditions here and that they tell us how much it matters to them. But I would also say we really celebrate everyday life. Mm -hmm. And so you walk through the doors and you typically, I hope, feel like, you know, you're welcome and you're really greeted warmly and you belong here to have that experience. The Grizz is really literally the center of town here. It's called an anchor of Essex. Can you talk about what this place means to the community? Obviously, this has been here, as I will say it again, you know, for over two centuries, right? And so you will see when you walk up and down Main Street, there are really well-preserved sea captains' homes. And, you know, you don't see, there's Talbots at the top of the street, but other than that, you don't see those kinds of, you know, there's no big box stores and there's no chain stores or whatever. There's a lot of small galleries and boutiques and such. 
And they are, I have to say, they are can be in business because the Griswold Inn is the draw and because we have been here for all of that period of time. So even when financial times are tough out there and tough for us as well, we still are the draw that brings people here. Honestly, everybody who comes through our doors is important, right? Because whether they're coming on a Saturday night and they're dressed up and using, you know, going out for a special dinner and it's a hard-earned paycheck and they're having that special experience or, um, you know, they're coming in, bellying up at the bar and, and, and having a beer or whatever, it's important to everybody to spend their time here, to spend some part of their time. We appreciate that. And it's all Okay, Sea Shanties has been on Monday night, and that continues, that tradition, for the last 50 years. It's funny to see maybe somebody who is staying at the inn and just happens upon that. They have this wonderful tradition where they all talk about, basically, that the concept is, you know, nobody's a stranger, they're just friends not yet met. And after you have that experience together on a Monday night, you're all friends. I say everybody, no matter what, you're like, Sea Shanties, I don't think that's my thing. When you are in the middle of that room and they are belting out those tunes and everyone knows the chorus and everyone is joining in, it, this, there is just really this wonderful sense of fellowship and camaraderie. That was Joan Paul, one of the co-owners of the Griswold Inn in Essex. For our final feature on restaurants that have stood the test of time, we went to West Hartford to meet Aaron and Angela Sarwar. They're the brother and sister team running the Shish Kebab House of Afghanistan. So, Aaron, your family opened this restaurant originally in the late 1980s? That's correct. They opened in 1988. So they actually initially opened a uh, fast food restaurant in Hartford. And they were just really yearning to open a sit-down family restaurant because of my grandmother. Those were her wishes. So they sold the, uh, the fast food restaurant put their money together and opened up Shishkoab House on Franklin Ave. It was 360 Franklin Ave, just diagonal from uh, from the original Mazzucatos. I basically grew up there, very uh, vivid memories. You know, my sister Angela here, basically doing our homework there. And I mean, it's just, it's been, yeah, it's all history. <laughs> yeah. I think my grandfather just saw we're in Little Italy and Franklin Avenue and all these Italian restaurants that were thriving at the time. And he was like, just had the vision. You know, he took that big risk. And my mom is just like him. She's the big risk taker in the family, which she decided to make that big move and step up to West Harvard Center. And thankfully, here we are 30 years later, still thriving. It's like amazing here, people say, as soon as they walk in with all the different levels, the dining, the bar area, the hookah lounge on the second floor. There's like a lot to do, completely different scenes in every single area. But yeah, it's good times. Me and Angela were, were born, were actually born here in, in Hartford, but my grandparents, uncles, my mother, my father, all of them actually moved to the United States from Afghanistan in the 80s. The reason my grandmother pushed for a restaurant is that's what she was really good at. When they were in Afghanistan, they'd have big get-togethers at the house, and she would cook. She would cook up a storm. That's where, that's where it comes from. So restaurants survive because their communities really rally around them. What's been your experience in the communities of Hartford and now West Hartford? And what was it like in the early days? Oh, in Hartford, it was awesome. Franklin Ave was definitely a little Italy. They had the uh, Italian festivals. I don't know if you guys had, had gone to those, but they were great. They would close the street down. We would actually get a table out there, put a grill out there, and uh, we'd be swapping kebabs for 
for meatballs and, and <laughs> pasta. We would close up at our restaurant and see like all our customers' cars were still in a parking lot. We're like, where are they? Like, how, where do they all go? You go go to Mazzucato's and they're all in there, you know, enjoying gelato and, and lattes and everything. It was it was quite the neighborhood. Yeah. They just, they basically uh, took us right into the community. Yeah, they really embraced you. Yeah. We have a lot of regular customers from Franklin Ave that come here like on a weekly basis. So we're really thankful for that. And they remember us running around being little children. They're like, oh my God, now we see you. They see our little children running around now too. So it's really <laughs> nice to still have that support from them. Biggest thing that comes to mind for me in terms of the community rallying around us uh, would be 9-11. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a very scary time for us. It's always like, where were you on 9-11? Well, we were kind of a receiving end of people just trying to vent their anger. It was kind of traumatic. I mean, within within hours, our, just our lives completely changed. Initially, we were just empty. I mean, people were egging the restaurant. We were getting phone calls and threats. And um, Asylum Hill Congregational actually came out in force. They had this big dinner event at the restaurant, basically filled the entire restaurant. And they did it regularly. It was awesome. The community really came out. It was, it was beautiful to see. We're definitely a part of the community, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's wonderful. So, Angela, you're the one that curated this menu. Are there dishes that your grandmother would have made or did make, and are there ones that really represent your family and this cultural heritage? Oh, yeah, definitely. I feel like the staples that my grandmother helped to create was the cobbly rice, the pumpkin, which is one of the most popular dishes here. She's the one who put that together, and people come till this day every Thanksgiving to get that dish for their Thanksgiving dinner every single year. Most important is the eggplant and the pumpkin dishes that my grandmother helped to create. Those will never, ever go away. Can like, you tell us about this pumpkin? Because Aaron just reacted strongly oh, to yeah, how the much pumpkin, he loves it. Yeah, I would say the vast majority of people love it. And then they get completely obsessed with it. We have people that come in, they'll sit at the bar and just get like a side of pumpkin. It's got like a little bit of a spice, but it's, it's got a sweetness to it. In my opinion, you have to have it with lamb and rice. The food is very specific to Kabul, Afghanistan. So my family's from the capital city. Uh, so the food is as you would get it in Kabul, Afghanistan. We know our ethnic group even. Like we're Kabuli Tajik. So like our food isn't as spicy. You'll find it to be very mild. If you want it spicy, just let us know. And we'll make it spicy. Honestly, like every week I see countless Afghans coming in here just to kind of get in our community and meet um, their fellow Afghans. So it's really nice that they see us, you know, kind of as that community place to feel like they're at home. Yeah, we definitely try to do as much as we can for the community. We didn't just talk to the families behind long-standing Connecticut institutions in 2023. We also got to know the chefs behind some newer restaurants in the state, like Damon Day Sawyer. He talked with producer Catrice Claudio about working with partners to launch his new restaurant, 29 Marco Court. They brought me down, seen the space, felt the energy of it, you know, looked at the community, looked at what was needed, looked at what I thought was missing from a chef's perspective in Bridgeport. Um, as a black chef as well, what kind of food would I be producing? It just made sense. It felt good. You can feel it here. I mean, if you look around, it's super intimate, but also super opulent. I feel like you wanted to roll the red carpet out for the Bridgeport community. You know, I want I want to be a fixture in kind of showing people other ways to eat, other ways to approach food. And it doesn't always have to be traditional. I think there's some exciting things around the corner for all of us because I have a wonderful team. I think that there's just like this stream of 
consciousness or just like passion that if you follow it, it kind of just takes you wherever it takes you. We are coming into your dining room, period. It's very much a space where you're being invited into and welcomed into. And I think that's what has made 29 Marco so special is that no one's doing it like you're doing it right now. Mm -hmm. To the point that when they describe it, they don't have a lot of words to Mm -hmm. give you. They just... They say it's upscale. They say it's New American. And I romanticize it. And I'm just like, oh, it's a love letter to the diaspora. Mm-hmm. We're centering and celebrating our comforts in this mm-hmm. French standard. And it's it's something I'm excited about. And I think the community's excited about. Um, how would you classify your cuisine? What makes it New American for you? And how would you define that? New American because, okay, when you think about the history of Black people in this country in relation to food and you know, whether it was getting hand-me-downs or whether it was cooking for presidents or whether it was creating what American food even feels like with mm-hmm. the South and barbecue and all of that, you get this sense of, like, we haven't been recognized for the food culture that we've contributed to this world. And so New America, because I'm here now and I'm, and I'm an executive I know, that's chef, right. You know what I'm saying? And there is a contribution that is very blatantly obvious at this point. And just as American. Right? And mm-hmm. just as American. So it's just that relationship where it's new America for me. And new American because of the stylistics of the food itself, the plating. There's a history of just, you know, rustic new America, American cuisine. So it's a play on, on kind of all those kind of fronts. I can't help but congratulate you on all that you've been doing. And all that you'll continue to do and how you show up because it's so important not only for Bridgeport but just for the chef culture in general so we thank you so much thank you (laughs) thank you for you know being an audience and giving me a platform Chef Day and his team just won the 2023 Restaurant Newcomer of the Year Award given by the Connecticut Restaurant Association Another local chef racking up the accolades is Renee Tupance of Oyster Club and the Port of Call in Mystic. She spoke with seasoned alum Chef Plum. It was a big year for her. Renee talked about her early cooking influences, her team and community of ocean farmers, and what it was like being a finalist for a James Beard Award. I had no expectation of any of this. As a chef, you only hope that you get that recognition, but it's literally like, putting lightning in a bottle, you know, like I'm so lucky. I'm so fortunate. I cannot say wholeheartedly how much love and respect and gratitude and thanks that I have for my teams. You know, I've worked very hard to get here, but I've also worked very, very hard on the relationships and the teams that I have. And we do this together and I'm so thankful. It's crazy how your youth comes full circle because I think I like to make comfort food that comes from nostalgia. And it's not just one type of cuisine. For me, I just pull in influences from my youth and also from from the cooks that I cook beside me. You know, there's so many things that I try to learn and take in through my journey that now is what I cook and create, but with my own rendition and and my own creation and mindset on it. So now, like, I'm trying to cook with love and from these memories of my youth, and and here I am serving bacalaitos and empanadas and all these things that I made at home with my parents, but using local ingredients and making them from scratch. Over at Oyster Club, you know, 
the focus there is seafood focus. So, you know, that relationship comes with your fishermen, our lobstermen, you know, we have our raw bar and, you know, most of our seafood is sourced through Seawell. Her name, I've been working with Aileen. Daily, there'll be a boat go out and then she'll send me a list like, okay, this is the fish that we've gotten today. And okay, we have monk, we have fluke, we have, you know, striper, we have tile, like whatever lands that day. From there, we get to curate our menus off of that. On top of that, we have our raw bar. So we have a variety of different oysters. And, you know, just to touch on one person's story out of the many oyster farmers that we work with, his name is Will Cedia. He started out as a shucker. He has studied aquaculture and is extremely passionate. It's knowing the stories behind where your food comes from too, you know, like I'll go out, him and and some of my cooks, you know, whoever wants to, he'll take us out to his oyster farm and we'll harvest oysters with him that morning. And then they'll be on the raw bar within like four hours. And it's coming from someone that I respect and know how passionate they are. And same is true for, you know, Susie from Stonington Kelp. She takes me out on the boat whenever I just need to like get some zen or let's go out on the water and let's let's harvest some kelp and you know it's just those relationships that you build with your farmers and knowing where the product is coming from understanding the work and their passion right it, it makes you have respect for knowing where your ingredient comes from all the work that they've put into it i want to do that justice by sharing their product with the world and then making sure that I use every aspect of it. That was a highlight from our conversation with Chef Renee Tuponce. We spoke with her at the Port of Call in Mystic. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. It's time for a short break. When we get back, highlights from another chef we cheered for this year, James Beard Award winner Sherry Pocknett. When they called my name, my whole body, my whole being shook. I was literally trembling. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go Team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Today, we're sharing highlights from some of the seasoned team's favorite conversations of 2023. 
One of the things we're experimenting with is handing our microphones over to other people. I love when a segment sounds like two friends talking and catching up. The next clip is just that. Sherry Pocknett made history in June when she became the first Indigenous female chef to win a James Beard Award. She won for her restaurant Sly Fox Den 2 in Charlestown, Rhode Island. We asked friend of the show, Rachel Sayet, to help us get to know Sherry and the cuisine that made her famous. Hi, everyone. Natasawis Rachel Sayet, Natasawis Akidusu, a Mahuganuk. Hello, greetings. My name is Rachel Sayet. My Mohegan name is Akidusu. I'm from the Mohegan Nation. Natasawis, Nepal's Apushan, Sunflower, Chef Sherry Parknett. I'm from the uh, Mashpee Wampanoag Nation, located all the way east, Mashpee, Massachusetts, Cape Cod, and delighted to be here. Sherry and I have known each other a long time. Sherry, I've been a fan of your cooking since before I met you. I don't even know how long at the powwows. I was a fan, especially of the more interesting foods that you had, like the frog's legs, the quail. I love that (laughs) stuff because I was always a weird kid. That doesn't make you weird. That just makes you knowledgeable about, you know, Eastern Woodland foods, coastal foods, foods that I grew up on in the 60s. So we did a lot of foraging for our food back then. Of course, the East Coast, we're seasonal people. My mom and dad taught us how to forage. And my mom, of course, taught me how to cook and identify plants and animals when I was very young. And I love cooking. As early as I can remember, I loved cooking. I wanted to cook. I always wanted to help. I tell this story all the time that I got the Susie homemaker when I was about seven or eight. And I took everything that was in the refrigerator that my father probably harvested or caught or hunted or fished. It could have been eels. It could have been scallops. It could have been deer meat or muskrat or whatever was in that refrigerator. I took it and cooked it in that easy bake oven and fed it to my brothers. And they ate every drop. So I knew then that, you know, I was good. (laughs) I was a good cook then. At least I thought I was. But growing up eating powwow food and going in the woods and picking sassafras, going berry picking blueberries and just eating the berries as are is the best really part of that. Because you're teaching your children what life is about and how to survive and knowing that these berries are there for you and if you don't pick them they'll go dormant so you got to keep picking them you gotta you gotta keep harvesting berries and nuts and whatever else is out there it's always exciting to see what's coming back it's always a lot to teach and that's the part that I love Sherry taught me so much thank you now I try to revitalize amongst my people the different seasonal holidays and the different things and your restaurant That's what makes it so unique, the seasonality, the indigenous foods, right? What are some of your your favorite things? Like I was thinking about the sassafras martini that you serve, for instance, as something that was just such a... Let me tell you, the elders were very upset about that because that is a medicine plant. And that, that was just one of my creations, the sassafras martini. And to mix it with spirits, they said it's not good. So I took some heat for that one. But the sassafras martini, boy, it's a good one. My favorite is striped bass. They follow the heron to cook with striped bass, to make ceviche with striped bass, 
to make fish cakes with striped bass is amazing. You can freeze it, you can salt it. And I love fishing for stripers. We go fishing all the time. That's my favorite season. Besides cranberry picking, I love cranberries. Cranberries my favorite. I do a corn cake with cranberries in it. It has cranberries and whole kernel corn and scallions. And people just love it. It's something different. It's something nutritional. It's really good. <laughs> the salmon, I was wondering if you wanted to talk at all about cooking the smoked salmon that you do. We have a friend that smokes all the salmon. And he's amazing. That's also what makes your food so unique, right? You're not just seasonal, but you're also getting a lot of stuff from local, indigenous, forage. To be able to support my local farmer, it doesn't matter if they're indigenous or white or black or poor or rich. It just matters that they have a garden and that they they create their own stuff. We also get maple syrup from Pequot, from Mashantucket. And that maple syrup is the best maple syrup in all the land. (laughs) Now, in terms of your restaurants, this is our third summer. We made it. We made quite a little name for ourselves. And somehow I got nominated for the James Beard Award. And I was flabbergasted. I was like, how do they even know about me? I was in shock. I'm still in shock, honestly. That was the award itself. I was happy. I I didn't plan on winning anything. And lo and behold, we ended up going. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to wear for this black tie affair. And I was told it's like the Oscars. The highest honor would be to wear my full traditional native regalia. And that's what I wore. I didn't think that I was going to get it. I just knew that I wanted to go there and show who I was and be proud, proud of who I was and how far I got. And when they called my name, my whole body, my whole being shook. I was literally trembling and barely made it up there. I didn't write a speech because I didn't think I was going to win. Didn't even think about winning, but I won and I'm the best chef in the Northeast, and I'm proud. Yeah, we all knew that you were the best chef. (laughs) And Sherry, being this amazing chef, has made a huge impact on not only the the culinary field, but awareness. You know, and I didn't even realize, they said, oh, she's the first Indigenous chef to win the James Beard. I was just thinking I was not Indigenous chef, but just a chef. You know what I mean? I didn't see it like that but I see it like that now and I'm proud I'm humble I have so much gratitude to creator and my family my friends my supporters I've got so much support love from everybody somebody put a post on Facebook I don't think the whole town of Mashby has a dry tear everybody's crying in Mashby and that was just you know makes me emotional. It makes me emotional. But all the more, I'm just grateful. I'm just grateful. That was Chef Sherry Pocknett talking with her friend, Rachel Sayed, who is an Indigenous educator. We set two friends up with microphones once more in May when Terry Walters, a cooking teacher and cookbook author, interviewed her close friend, one of my favorite local bakers, Kevin Massey. 
Kevin owns small state provisions, and he makes the best focaccia in the state. They talked as Kevin was getting ready to open a second small state, a much larger bakery in Avon. Terry and Kevin talked about the community that makes the bakeries possible. So you were super nice to pick me up this morning on our way here. I and was. we did make a stop yes. along the way. Yes. So, so speaking we, about organic and yeah. all of the local organizations that you support. When I started doing this, it was like, how can I take revenue that we're earning through the bakery and really make sure that for the most part, it's going back into the community. And so Sub Edge Farm, which is based not too far from your house and not too far from our new bakery, is where we get all of our eggs. And so I drive out there once a week and I pick up all the eggs. And I still get that feeling going up and over the hill to see the expansive valley and to think that 10 minutes from home is this beautiful farm Mm -hmm. where I can pick up my eggs. And I love supporting what they do. And my hope is that as we grow, they can keep up with the demand for us because we used to get 15 dozen eggs and today I picked up 45 dozen eggs. So it's been growing. I'm really glad there was room for me in the car. (laughs) (laughs) And we get a lot of produce from them in the summers too. So it's part of the ecosystem that I want to support, which Mm -hmm. is supporting the community that supports us. Tell me a little bit about how your community has fed you and the relationship you have not only with the community of your staff, but with the greater community. We work with amazing restaurant partners. So we've got Millwrights, we've got Present Company out in Terraville where people can find our bread on the menu, Union Kitchen here in West Hartford. We've got Hands on Hartford, which is the Gather 55 restaurant, which I'm really proud to be working with them. We've got Blue Plate Kitchen out in Bishop's Corner. Hartford Flavor gets bread from us for some of their cheese plates every week that they make. They all trusted in us from the beginning and said, we would like for you to provide our bread. And the bread will always be the engine of what we do. Everything else is just because we love baking and we love what we do around baking. But bread is my my true passion. One of my favorite things about this is like, I will have two customers that are in line And they end up knowing each other and it creates conversation. It creates real connection with people. And I've brought in the bakers that I work with mostly from the community. I think you only have to be here once or twice before people greet you by name and they look at you and they look down at the counter and say, oh, I think you want those cookies. Yeah, okay, give me (laughs) one of the cookies. (laughs) It just, it feels very much like home. Yeah, and that's, we get that a lot that when people come into our little bakery, it feels like they're stepping into somebody's kitchen. And that's something that I'm going to work very hard to kind of replicate at the new space because it is much bigger, but I still want it to have that very intimate, homey feel where people are, you know, we know who each other are and we, we take care of each other. Small State Provisions in Avon has been open for a few months now. Check their Instagram to find out which Wednesdays are sourdough pizza nights. And then my advice is to get there early. And I think you know why. You can hear Sherry and Rachel's complete conversation, Terry's and Kevin's too, at ctpublic.org seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. After a short break, more of our favorite conversations from 2023, this time with people growing food for their communities. We invite people to please take the strawberries. People love to joke like, oh, I'm just going to like grab one really quick. And we're like, please grab as many as you can find. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. 
We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. We're sharing highlights from some of our favorite conversations of 2023. So far, we focused on restaurants and food makers. Now, it's time to shine a light on people who grow food, specifically as a way to connect with their communities. Seasoned producer Tegan Engel spoke with a family in New Britain who turned their lawn into a pick-what-you-need garden for their community. Christiana Smith and their spouse, Mike Saracino, bought their first home in New Britain in 2021. Christiana is a cultural worker and facilitator, and Mike is a sex therapist and relationship coach. They share a passion for community, healing work, and gardens. I spoke with them this spring when the first sprouts were popping up. What inspired you to transform your front yard into a garden? So one of the things we always wanted with moving into a house was the ability to have a garden, to farm some stuff on the land, maybe get a few animals. Uh, we also really, really hate grass, and so we decided that we were going to cover as much of it as possible with plants and garden beds. So we had this quick back and forth when we first moved in of like, should we make a small garden and maybe we make it bigger? And then I was like, or we could just make our dream garden right off the bat and see how it goes. And we dreamed up like the coolest garden that we could think of and it was a little bit of like I wanted a tunnel and then Mike wanted fruit trees and then I wanted a chessboard and then Mike wanted a berry patch and then like eventually it was just the whole the whole thing it was just like back and forth and back and forth until it was ginormous so can we take a walk and look at your garden yeah we could take a walk and look at the garden I would love that great so what's over here we have these native plum trees that are just getting started. They're only a couple feet off the ground right now. That is a quince tree. We have a couple baby fig trees. And this arbor here has two different types of grapes. Mike knows more about the grapes. I'm going to hand it to him. Yeah, we have a uh, Concord grape, which is your typical purple grape that you get jelly from. That should take up most of the arbor. And then on the other side is a Somerset grape. And these are grapes for eating, not for winemaking. Can you describe a little what you built over here? Yes. So we have a triangle-shaped bed right on the corner of the property that's just mostly a strawberry bed. So this is where we invite people to please take the strawberries. People love to joke like, oh, I'm just going to like grab one really quick. And we're like, please grab as many as you can find. And we, I heard you had some kids come and visit. Yeah, we have uh, three schools that are nearby. So lots of kids, elementary, middle and high school, always walk by here. And so whenever they're by, we're outside, we tell them, hey, come pick some strawberries, you know, take as many as you want. Some kids say no thanks and move on. But a lot of kids just jump right in there and start taking them. And so they'll come by at night. They'll ride by on their bikes and be like, hey, can I grab some strawberries? Sure. And they'll take them all. That's so great. And how much did you get last time they picked? They picked a good amount. And then the next day I went out and I pulled out eight pounds of strawberries. (laughs) Wow. That's very impressive. All right. So what else do we have over here in the front? I wanted something that was like super inviting. We made a really large double cattle panel arch which we're training some climbing roses on right now and on either side of the arch is is flower beds the flower beds do have a lot of herbs in them specifically like a lot of yarrow and a lot of sage 
and a lot of chives because I like to cook with all of those things. And I call the beds the salad bar because this is where we have most of our like greens, our lettuces. Um, it's where we have a lot more of our herbs. I train cucumbers and beans on the back and this is where the tomatoes are. How have you noticed that planting this garden has affected the way that you all are together as a family and also your relationship with the land that you live on? Being outside in the garden helps us all slow down a little bit. Just being able to like walk and do a loop is so good to the nervous system. So we've made the decision to homeschool Rosaria. And so the garden gives us a chance to take her outside and teach a whole bunch of different lessons. So we've done chemistry, ecology, biology, weather and earth sciences, math, in addition to some kinesthetics, you know, lifting stuff, digging, etc. And so it's really nice to just go outside and essentially have a whole classroom for her. That's great. You have a natural classroom right here. And then also like gardening is such a great practice in grounding to be able to be liberatory. The first like black gardener I ever really witnessed were Leah and Naima Peniman of Soulfire Farm. And I was like, wait, black people garden still? Like it's okay to do that and it's not oppressive. And I had only had our little tiny garden and being a black person who is creating like a generative relationship with land is a liberatory thing. And I love being able to learn and practice. And so I feel like my garden and my relationship with my family is the first place that I practice the things that I believe make large collective work possible. How have you noticed that the garden has affected your neighbors and your community? How has it impacted them? I think that it gives people something to smile about. The amount of people who have left us notes or pulled over or walked by to tell us that like being near the garden makes them happy, that it's the best part of their commute or they're having a hard day so they're just going to walk by. Like That praxis and joy is really lovely. Our neighbors are starting to be in the praxis of sharing with us and I think that that does something to everyone like it makes a community feel like a community. So we have neighbors not just the immediate folks but folks down the road other streets even the other side of town who will drive by beep the horn say hi ask us when the pumpkins are coming in so they can come by and get one and it's really wonderful it happens about every 20 minutes every time we're outside so it's kind of hard to get some stuff done but it's really nice being able to talk to folks it's really nice sitting inside in our kitchen looking out the front window and you just see people walking and stopping and taking in the flowers enjoying it and the smiles folks get when we give them a bouquet or hey we made some extra jam would you like some they just light up like a kid on christmas That was Mike Saracino and Christiana Smith describing their pick-what-you-need garden. There's lots more to learn about that garden. I'll link to the full episode on our show page. Before we go, a quick highlight from a conversation Tegan had with two young Black farmers in Bridgeport on a mission to change the image of farming. My name is Richard Myers. They call me Farmer Rich. My name is Sean Joseph, also known as Farmer Sean. I met up with farmers Rich and Sean on their small farm in the Bridgeport Trumbull area. In the backyard behind a small white house, they were hard at work tending the soil and the plants. I've long admired their work to uplift black farmers in Connecticut. Plus, it's really not easy making a living from farming, but they're doing it. Standing between the garlic and the callaloo, I asked them how they got started in farming. 
Farmer Rich answered first. We both have similar stories when it comes to how we got started in farming. My grandmother started me off at a young age. I grew up in Jamaica, so that's where we eat off the land. She also taught me business as well. She was also talented at gardening. So what I did was when I started a business, I wanted to do something that was um, tapped in with her in a way because she had passed away. So I wanted to do something that would help the environment as well as be tapped in with her. And that's what led me to this here. Mm. Similar to Rich, I got started off with my grandmother at age seven. We moved to a house where we finally had a yard. So after flipping over a patch of grass and also seeing a seed go from, you know, nothing there Mm-hmm. and then growing to a large plant, providing its produce. It looked like magic to me, and I still believe it is, and I just fell in love with it ever since. So I've just always dealt with plants in some way, shape, or form. You know, I decided to get in touch with what I was passionate about, what I felt I can do every day, even if I didn't get paid mm-hmm. for it. And that's what led to um, you know, the road of becoming a farmer and having a farm business. So how did... Park City Harvest start and tell us a little what is Park City Harvest? Well it started in Naugatuck Valley Community College the um, same college that we met at um, we were the two a- only African Americans in the program we had um, a teacher that taught us that you can make a good amount of money off of tomatoes and we looked at each other and was like hey we're going to start a business so we want to feed the neighborhood as well as get paid to feed the neighborhood and as we were in the business we noticed that we were the only people really in this industry in our neighborhoods especially so one of our main missions was to change the image of farming and um, we've been on that road ever since so we're attempting to grow a variety of different herbs leafy greens and some produce primarily stuff that is uh what we say cultural appropriate so based off the population in our neighborhood so we grow in different things like sorrel or okra a lot of different leafy greens, some kalaloo, things like that. And the reason why I say attempt is because we've managed to protect our crops from the deer that have come in previous years. And it just seems the groundhogs woke up a little extra hungry this year. So they've found or made little holes in the fencing. Along with growing the produce, um, we do make products from them. So from our peppers, carrots, and cabbage, we'll make something called peakleys, which is from my Haitian background. And we also do make a, um, different types of infused oils with rosemary or garlic and chives or thyme or sage, things of that nature. And outside of growing here on the field, we do have an indoor setup where we do microgreens. So along with either selling to small local restaurants or food truck owners, we also do have a microgreen subscription. You have some really good mottos. Part of being good entrepreneurs, you also do good social media. And I love your, that you're farming for financial freedom is one of your mottos. Can you talk a little bit about what that means for you and why that's so important? Because a lot of people in our community, they really assume that farming is tied into slavery somewhat. So what we're doing is changing that format, right? So if you're farming for financial freedom, you're basically farming your own money. You're growing your own money, which is... You're growing until the point you're growing enough income as well that you're financially free just from growing your vegetables and you're growing your plants. Yeah, um, one thing that we also have is uh, stay loyal to the soil. Mm-hmm. So with that one, it has a few different meanings, but one, like literally staying loyal to the soil itself, I always feel, because people always ask about different issues or problems that they have with their plants, and I always go straight to the soil because a lot right. of times that is the source of it. And it is the foundation. It's the foundation of all the building blocks of life. So it's all about staying that. And it's also a term as far as staying loyal to your community, to your neighborhood, to your family, whatever it may be. So mm-hmm. whatever source you came from, just in a sense, staying loyal to that. Right. 
So in terms of being connected with your community, I know that you just said is a really important part of what you do. In, you're in the Bridgeport community, right? So how do you think it affects folks in the Bridgeport community to be seeing the two of you as black farmers feeding your community? I think it's definitely a positive impact. It's been a lot more agricultural-based businesses that we've seen just in Bridgeport itself when we first started doing everything. As far as black farmers, we feel all alone in it. What we've been doing, we've seen you know, an increase in the interest. I'm not sure if it's directly tied to us or not, but there have been a good amount of people that have come to us and said that they've started a garden because of us or they've gotten interested into it or they've started or joined different community gardens, things of that nature. So it's definitely a good feeling of knowing that what we set out to do, that it is being done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely know for a fact a good three agricultural businesses in Connecticut alone came up to us and said, we started our business because of you guys, as well as people that's outside of the agricultural business, just entrepreneurs in general say, hey, you gave me the confidence to actually push myself to go ahead and go. So mm-hmm. I love that part of it. That was Richard Myers and Sean Joseph, the farmers and entrepreneurs behind Park City Harvest. They're cookbook authors, too. Tegan cooks from their book, Grow to Eat, in the full episode, which is linked on our show page. The seasoned producers and I are passionate about people who are passionate about food and their communities right here in Connecticut. There are many, many more stories to hear on our website, ctpublic.org seasoned, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Seasoned is produced by me and... Meg Dalton, Tegan Engel, Stephanie Stender, Catrice Claudio, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. And we could not have marked our third year of storytelling without support and guidance from Connecticut Public's North Star, Katie Talarski. And a special thank you to producer Stephanie Stender. She builds up our recipe archive, researches guests, helps book and prep interviews, and shapes these stories by editing many, many hours of tape. Thanks for listening, everybody, all through 2023 and beyond. We're looking so forward to the stories we'll tell and all the delicious things we'll eat and drink and share with you in 2024. See you next time.